Amen. Well, today we're finishing a, a mini-series called The Practices of the Church, where we've looked at what the church does. We've seen that the church baptizes uh, new believers. We've seen that the church celebrates the Lord's Supper together. And we've seen that the church unites specific members of the body of Christ visibly in a local body of believers. Now, today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how these and every other biblically sound practice help the church to accomplish its mission. The question for you this morning is what is the mission of the church? Have you ever thought about that before? Could you give someone a biblical answer to that question? You see, there are all kinds of churches that do all kinds of different things, but what did God ultimately design the church to accomplish? What is the the purpose and mission that he has given the church? If you can't answer that question with great clarity, then you have no way to know what our church or any other church should be aiming at. And you also have no objective way to measure the health of any given church. And so this question is actually very important for believers. And with that in mind, our outline this morning is going to be very simple. We're going to look at what is the mission of the church and why should you embrace the mission of the church. For those of you who are taking notes, it's what is the mission of the church and why embrace the mission. For our first main point, Matthew 28 is famous precisely because it so clearly captures the mission that God has for his church, often referred to as the Great Commission. A point that you can't miss is that a faithful church can't just create its own mission. A faithful church receives its mission from God. In Matthew 28, after his saving work of dying as a sacrifice for our sins and rising from the dead, Jesus met with the apostles, the key leaders of the church before his ascension into heaven. And in that meeting, he gave them the marching orders for their lives and for the entire church until he returns. After telling them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. So what is the mission of the church here in this passage? It's to go and make disciples. The mission of the church is to go and make disciples of all nations. And so the church is to intentionally focus on this work of making disciples. Now, if that's true, what is a disciple? Well, the most basic definition of the New Testament word disciple is a learner. At the time of Christ, it referred to a devoted follower or an apprentice. Often it it would refer to someone who was following a religious leader, and their goal was to conform their whole life to the teaching and the example of that that leader. And so this fits well with Jesus' definition that a disciple is not just one who is taught all of Jesus' commands. Notice that. You can learn all about the Bible that you want. But Jesus said a disciple is one who's been taught to observe or obey everything that has been commanded. When you synthesize all of Jesus' teaching on discipleship in the Gospels, I think a helpful working definition is to say that a disciple is someone who joyfully chooses Christ over everything else that the world has to offer. A disciple is someone, when push comes to shove, if you're told you can only choose one thing to keep in your life, 
What, what is the most important thing that you have to give up everything else for? And a disciple happily says, Jesus. Jesus Christ is the most important thing in my life. Jesus is the most valuable and most fulfilling thing to me. See, Christ is the ultimate treasure for believers. And so the motivation for disciples of Jesus to make disciples is because of their desire to grow closer to Christ and for others to come to know or grow in their love and worship of him. Now, because the motive of the mission is just as important as the mission itself, we combine both the great commandment and the great commission in our church mission statement. Walnut Creek Church exists to glorify God by making authentic disciples of Jesus Christ who love and worship him in all they do. We want everything we do as a church to be filtered through that lens. But that brings up then another question. How do we make disciples? If the church is supposed to give itself to making disciples, how do we do that? Well, if you know your Bibles, you know that we can't save anyone. We can't produce spiritual growth in any person. But at the same time, the Bible is clear that God's will is to work through Christians to help save others, to help others to grow spiritually. So what, what does it look like then practically to be involved in making disciples? A way to check your paradigm in this is to ask yourself the question, what's the first activity that comes to your mind when you hear the phrase, making disciples? When you think about the Great Commission or the mission of the church, what, what is the first activity that, that comes into your mind that you associate with that? There's lots of, of different images probably in, in many of your minds, but I would guess that many of you, what you immediately begin to think about is evangelism. My guess is that for most of you, the very first thing you think about is, is sharing the gospel with unbelievers. Now, if you know me, you know I am all about evangelism. I'm all for evangelism. But at the same time, that is far too shallow of a definition for what, what a church's mission is. That, that view, if it's reduced to that, it is an inadequate view of having a healthy church. Now, for starters, remember that the church is not called to pursue mere conversions. We're, we're called to pursue fully mature disciples of Christ who are, who are instructed to obey all that he's commanded. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 captures this well. In the first few verses, Paul explains how God has given every believer a different gift. And we're to use the different ways that God has gifted us to build up the body, to help the church grow. And in verse 13, he explains the point of this. He says the point is, till, he says, the point is until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. So what's the goal for our, the use of our gifts? It's to build up the church so that all of us become more like Christ, that our lives individually, together, we, we reflect our Savior. Now, Paul, he goes on and he says, then if this is happening, then we'll no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow up in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. As critical as sharing the gospel is, that is only one component of how the church is to make disciples. Now the point, if we just look at, at 
Ephesians alone. The point is that those who hear the gospel and respond to it, they're never going to mature spiritually unless they regularly gather with other Christians to worship God and to, to hear his word taught. They're, they're going to be stunted as well unless they have deep fellowship with other believers in their day-to-day lives, learning to serve and use their unique spiritual gifts to strengthen the church. They need to learn that God wants them to represent him in their spheres of influence, whether it's in their neighborhood or their, their classroom, their office building. And one of the things I love about this passage in Ephesians is that Paul, he portrays a healthy, growing church as one where all of the believers are growing more like Christ. All the believers are passionate about becoming more like Jesus, and each one of them is working, using their their unique gift to build up the church. Verse 16 is so wonderful. Paul says the church builds itself up in love according to the proper working of each individual part. In In the mission of God, every member matters. Every Christian matters to the mission. And in light of that, there are two big errors that Christians make when it comes to the mission of the church. The first, I'm going to call the I got this mentality. The I got this mentality. And this is where you think that you can mature spiritually and make disciples on your own. This comes when when people overvalue their own gifting and they don't realize that they need the love and support and gifting of other believers to not only help them continue to grow, but also to to help in their efforts to love and disciple others. When I think of the the I got this mentality, it makes me think of 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul says that some members of the body, they say, "I, I don't need the rest. And I want you to picture a thumb for a moment. So let's say a thumb. A thumb is pretty wonderful, right? Pretty helpful. It'd be hard to to grip things very securely without your thumb. Hard to text efficiently, but you can't do the double thumbs up, right? (laughs) Without without a thumb. But what would you think if you saw a thumb severed from a hand lying on the floor? Would you think to yourself, man, that thumb is really going places. (laughs) That that thumb, that thumb is really going to get a lot done. That's not what you think. You think that thumb is in big trouble, right? See, God never designed individual members of the body of Christ to exist in isolation. That's more like a horror movie. You know, severed parts of the body, just independent of the rest of the body. That's like a, that's a horror movie. That's not God's design. Now, the opposite error is to rightly recognize that God makes disciples through the church, in the context of the church, but then to use that as an excuse to avoid individual responsibility for using your gifts to serve believers and to reach out to the lost. Now, this is the you got this mentality. You got this mentality. It's when believers that either fail to recognize that God has given them a role to play in his mission, or they minimize that role. They don't think it's significant, or they just are negligent to embrace it. Going back to the the image of the body. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, he says that some parts of the body, they say, I don't belong to the body because they don't think that they're significant. And imagine the, th- the thumb saying, I'm, I'm not part of the body because I don't see like the eyes. I don't, I don't speak like the mouth. I don't impress people like the biceps. So I'm not really important. And you think to yourself, no, 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 no. The body, it, it is so handicapped if you lose that part. If you lose that member, you see, to avoid these errors and how we pursue making disciples, we need to realize that God is the one who ultimately changes people's lives. God is the one who saves. God is the one who gives the growth 
in the Christian life, and he gives each and every Christian a part to play in his work. And that brings us to the second main point this morning, and that is why embrace the mission of the church? If the mission of the church is to glorify God by making disciples, why should you give your life to that mission instead of the millions and millions of other things that you could give your life to? Have you ever wrestled with that question? Have you ever wondered, is it really worth it to surrender your life to God's will and to prioritize his mission above all your other ambitions and dreams? Is it worth it to do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to give you at least three big reasons why. First, giving your life to God's mission is the best way to love and worship God. We get a hint of this in Matthew 28, 17. This is the the first time that Matthew records the disciples seeing Jesus after his death. And when they saw the resurrected Christ, it says they worshiped him. There's no indication that they were commanded to do this. It appears to have been a a spontaneous reaction to their risen Lord. Some of them, they they just couldn't help but worship Christ on the spot. And this is the natural response whenever people's hearts perceive who Jesus is and what he's done. When people perceive who Jesus Christ actually is and what he has done for them, the only appropriate response is worship. It's to be in awe of him. It's to praise him and to be grateful to him. Now, why is that the only appropriate response? Let let me explain. First, it's because Jesus is God. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a great example to us. He's the second person of the Trinity, the eternal creator who spoke the entire universe into existence and continues to maintain it and sustain all of it, even as I speak. I was reminded of this recently on vacation. I went down to Table Rock Lake in Missouri a couple of of weeks ago, and almost every day I got to see the sunrise and the sunset. And I have a, a picture here of a sunrise at Table Rock Lake. And of course, that that can't really do it justice. No picture can really do it justice. But when I, when I see a sunrise, one of the, the first things that comes into my mind is that this, even a simple sunrise, this right here is more impressive than anything. It's more beautiful than anything that human beings have ever created or ever will be able to create. And then the second thing I think to myself is that this sunrise, a sunset, those are happening 24-7. Like, around the world, it, it's changing. God's displaying his vastness and creativity and beauty in unique ways, 24-7. All around the world, there's a, a sunrise happening now, sunset happening right now. And Jesus is the one who's in control of that. Jesus is the God directing that. Jesus is God the Son, and that means he's omniscient or all-knowing, understanding not just everything in the past, present, or future of this universe, which would be pretty impressive. He knows everything that could be in any conceivable universe that he created. And, and Jesus, he doesn't have to study hard. You know, he doesn't have to read a bunch of books to figure that all out. He knows all of that because it's intrinsic to his very nature. Jesus is also perfectly righteous. That means he never does anything selfishly or out of greed, but always acting in line with his perfect love and holiness, which is why he hates everything evil that happens in this world. 
He sees the destruction that sin brings. And if you've been following the news, you, you probably heard recently about the nurse in London who's been accused of killing seven babies in her charge. She tried to kill 13, and she used her medical expertise to do it in a way that she thought wouldn't be detectable to other people. And all signs is that, that, that she has done this. And people around the world, they're outraged. People are disgusted. I mean, people are shocked. Like, how, how could this happen? And it's right for us to be offended by that. It's right for us to be disgusted by that. But have you ever asked yourself, is God less offended by human sin? Is he less offended by the evil that you see in the world than you are? No. He's far more offended. He hates it far more than we do. And because Jesus Christ is perfectly righteous, he not only hates the dramatic sins that shock us, He also hates the day-to-day selfishness and self-absorption and pride and sense of entitlement and ingratitude that we just take for granted, that are just normal to us. And he hates those because he knows that's the source of where the most horrific crimes and expressions of evil ultimately come from. All of our sin is ultimately against God as our creator, and that means that we are guilty before him. We're guilty before this one who is more powerful and more awesome than we can fully grasp. The one who spoke the universe into existence, the one in control of every sunrise and sunset, we will stand before him and be judged. Now, people in our culture, they'll often say, only God can judge me. Have you heard that before? When I hear that, I often think to myself, do you have any idea how true and how terrifying that is? (laughs) Do you have any idea what you're saying. We are going to stand before Christ. And the scripture is clear that we deserve to be judged. We deserve God's judgment. And what we deserve, the Bible says, is to experience God's wrath in hell. That's what we should get from God. We should not get his approval. And so what makes human beings spontaneously begin to worship a holy God who promises to punish all sin? Well, that only happens when people realize that this same God stepped into the world that we ruined, and he did it not to to smite sinners, but he did it to save them. He came not to crush us, but to be crucified for us. See, the reason the cross is so precious to Christians is because it was there that the great exchange took place. Jesus took all of our sin and all of our shame and all the punishment that we deserve on the cross so that he could extend his own love and his own righteousness as a free gift of grace. See, salvation is something you can never earn. You can't earn it by going to church. You can't earn it by trying to give your life to the mission of the church. It's a free gift that can only, it can only be humbly received by faith in Jesus' finished work. Now, that free gift of salvation, it's critical to understand. Many people perceive the gift of salvation as as simply having our sins forgiven and being rescued from hell. And if if that's all salvation was, Jesus would be worthy of all of our worship. But the reality is that salvation and the gift of salvation is much, much greater than that. According to Jesus, eternal life, the free gift of salvation, it's an intimate gift relationship with God. See, sin separates us from God. Sin deserves God's judgment. So Jesus took that himself, and he did that so he could offer us a way back into a relationship 
with him. It's not like someone just forgiving a huge debt that you owed. It'd be like them also then turning around and giving you a million dollars. Christianity, it's, it's about how we've been saved from the worst eternity that we could possibly face. And we've been saved to the best eternity imaginable. Christianity is, is just as much and even more so what we're saved to, not just what we're saved from. And so if you realize that Jesus is the same creator who volunteer, is, is the creator and he voluntarily died so that your debt of sin could be paid for. And he died for that sin he hated so that you could be brought into a loving relationship with him that begins now and lasts for the rest of eternity. If you believe that, the only thing that makes sense is to humbly receive the free gift of salvation and to give the rest of your life to loving and worshiping him. See, if you're a Christian, you've tasted what I'm talking about. If you're a Christian, you know Jesus is the only thing that is ultimately going to satisfy me. He is worthy of my whole life. But if you're honest, if you're a Christian, you also know that it's very easy for us to lose sight of Christ day to day and to begin to live for lesser things, to love lesser things. And God knows that too. God knows that too. And this is one of the reasons that he commands you to embrace his mission. See, the mission of God, it's not a... a it's not a, an obligation that is to, is to drain us of life. It's not something where God is, is needy and depending on us. No, the commands of God, they're a pathway to consistently walking with him. They're the pathway to consistently sensing how much we need him every single day. God's commands, they're a pathway to experiencing, experiencing him in deeper ways as we obey in faith. And we see this in the promise Jesus included at the end of the Great Commission. In verse 20, after giving the mission, Jesus says, and remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus isn't sending us into the mission alone. He promises to be with us. And I take this not as just a, a general promise of his presence. No, Jesus, he's omnipresent as God. There's a sense in which he's present with everyone, with unbelievers. And I think what Jesus is promising here is that if you embrace my mission, he says, I'll be with you. I think he's promising us to experience his presence and his power in a unique way as we align our life with what he's doing in the world. Colossians 1 speaks to this. Paul says, we proclaim him, speaking of Christ. We proclaim Christ, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Here again is the goal, not professions of faith, not just bigger churches. The goal is that people would be mature disciples in Christ. Paul says, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. See, the reason we often don't experience God's power in our life, one of the big reasons is that the Holy Spirit wasn't given to us to help us selfishly live our lives, to help us just build our own little kingdoms, and our egos. Now, the Holy Spirit was given to us so that we could have the power to live out the commands of God. It was given to us to help us to live out the unique callings that he has given to each one of us. And so that brings me back full circle to my point. Why should we embrace the mission of the church? It's because it's the very best way to, to, to love and worship God. Second reason is that embracing God's mission is the best way to love and serve 
others. It's also the best way to love and serve others. As Christians, we're called to love others like Christ has loved us. And that means seeking the highest good of others, even at, at great personal cost. And we're called to, to show others the compassion that Christ has shown us. And we're called to meet the real needs that people have so that our good deeds can put the love of Christ on display. Now, some of you are uniquely gifted by God to do this. Some of you, this is part of how God has uniquely gifted you to help build up our body. And I'm so thankful as a, a pastor for some of you who, who joyfully and tirelessly meet tangible needs of those in our church and in our community. That work is a vital part of the mission of the church. And the, the church, it can't be healthy. It can't be influential without people giving themselves to those things. But at the same time, that needs to be kept in balance. You see, if we only meet people's physical needs and we never use that as a way to point people to Christ, then we're actually meeting their greatest need. We're, we're missing their greatest need and their highest good. Now, I'm not saying that every time you serve someone, you need to automatically then share, share the gospel. That's not what I'm saying. But if that's not the goal of our service, if that's not what we're trying to point people to, then in, in many ways, that'd be similar if you're, if you're serving non-believers especially. That'd be similar to, to having the cure for cancer. You have the cure for cancer and you have a, a friend who is terminal. And every time they come to you, instead of offering the cure, you just give them painkillers. You give them medication just to deal with their symptoms, but not to actually get to the root issue. See, churches that, that focus on people's physical needs, if that's all churches do, then they're going to go from one fire to the next. And often they're going to see the same people in crisis over and over again. But churches that embrace the mission that God has given to make disciples, now over time, what churches will, will see is they'll see the gospel transform people's lives. They'll be in a position to see God take people who are stuck in constant crisis mode, get to a place where they can turn around and then help other people get out of their cycles of brokenness. Now, one of the things when I get discouraged spiritually that is most refreshing for me, most energizing for me, is when I think about how God has changed the life of, of close family members and friends. When I, when I think about all the good that God has brought, not just into my life, but into other people who have embraced following Christ. Now, I have many examples that I could share, but one of my favorites is a friend of mine from college. And this friend, we were both freshmen at the same time. We graduated together. And uh, when I met him, I don't know if I, I've met a more insecure and angry and awkward young man. He had one of the worst backgrounds in terms of dysfunction in his family, terrible relationship with his dad. And one of the first times I interacted with him, he was, he was drunk and he was high and he was making a fool of himself on campus. But the same friend, you know, shortly afterwards, he accepted Christ. And when he accepted Christ, he, he fell in love with Jesus. Now, the patterns in his life, they didn't immediately change. But over time, through the relationships of those in the church, God began to deal with his anger issues. And God began to, to deal with his insecurity and anxiety. You know, the, the first time I met him, it was hard to, to even have a conversation with him. And by the end of those four years, he was an incredible friend to other people, incredibly loyal, a, a wonderful, wonderful friend. And then you fast forward to today, and he's married. He has some kids. He has a sweet relationship with his wife and kids. 
I would never have pictured it when I first met him, but he, he's a leader of leaders at his job. He has an influential job, making lots of money. He's like this professional now. <laughs> and I'm like, man, this is incredible how God has transformed your life. And this guy, he still loves Jesus. He's still following Jesus. So that's one example of how the best thing that you can do for others is to give your, give your life to making disciples. So every person who walks in this door, I don't know if you've thought about this before, every person that you meet, do you know that you already know the very best thing for their life? Not the details, but the very best thing for everyone who walks in our church, I already know it, is to give their life completely to Christ and his mission. That's the best thing for every single human being. Now that, that is true on an individual level. It's also true as you begin to zoom out. It's also true for families. Like I mentioned with my, my friend, a lot of the biggest pain and biggest joy in people's lives are experienced through their family. And one of the things I love about the gospel is that it has the power to mend broken families. The gospel, it is a stronger foundation for families than anything else that the world has to offer. And we could look at a number of examples. Psalm 112 is one of my favorites. It says, Hallelujah! Happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. His descendants will be powerful in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. For those of you who are parents here, it's important that you don't hear this message and think of making disciples as something that is primarily done outside of the home. Now, I remember talking to a dear friend a few years ago, and he was talking about trying to balance, wanting to make disciples, but the, kind of the pressure at home, and he was pitting those things against each other. And I said, hey, time out, brother. Let's just remember that, that making disciples, that's not, that's not just out of the home. Like the most important mission field that you have right now, the most important context for making disciples, it's with your own children. For those of you who are, are parents, God wants you to teach and model God's word to them. He wants you to seek to win, win their hearts and to point them to Christ. And so part of that is showing them that they're not the center of our universe, but Christ is. Part of them is showing them how you use your gifts to serve and build up the church. Part of it is showing them how to, to care about and reach out to others who don't know Christ. But don't think that discipleship, that's something primarily outside of the home. For many of you, in, in the season you're in, one of the, the primary spots that will be expressed is at home. Now, as we zoom out even further, we can ask ourselves, what's the best way a church can love its city and its nation and even the world? Well, the answer to that question is to stay on mission. It's to keep the main thing, the main thing, and focus on glorifying God by making authentic disciples of Jesus Christ who love and worship him in all they do. Proverbs 11.10, it records the general truth that when the righteous thrive, a city rejoices. When the righteous thrive, a city rejoices. Now, I'm not saying that the more religious people there are in the city, the better it will be. That might be correlated at times. But what I am saying is that the more people who are righteous because of faith in Christ, the more people who, are, who love Jesus and have embraced his mission that there are in the city, the more people there will be who deeply care about the well-being of that, of that city. So Christians are commanded to love our neighbors. And so we want to be a church where the Southside community would actually miss us if we were to, to shut down. That we'd be missed because people can see the good that we bring to the area, even if they don't believe what we believe. On a bigger scale, 
The best thing churches can do for our nation is to stay focused on the task of making disciples. Proverbs again says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Elections and politicians and laws are all very important and influential. But you know what is even more powerful in a nation? It's the character of its citizens. What do the people love and worship? See, that is something that the, that the church is uniquely equipped to transform. The church, not the state, has been entrusted by God with proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. And churches for the last 2,000 years have been doing that all around the globe in times of peace and times of persecution. And so the best thing we can do for our nation is to be consistent and focused on making disciples. And one of the things that is amazing to me is that as churches are faithful in that, that God can use local churches to impact the globe, to impact people on the other side of our planet. And as we study through Genesis over the past year, we've seen that God has always had a plan to bless all the peoples of the world. And that was going to be realized through Christ. Jesus is the ultimate, ultimate source of that blessing. And yet, what are the, the means for it? The church is called to do what? Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? All the nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. And the church is to be the vehicle by which nations are introduced to Christ as missionaries are sent out to people groups who are still waiting to hear the message of eternal life. It's wild for me as I, I think back about how much God has grown our church over the last 20 years. You know, 20 years ago, we had one church location. It was you know, decent size, but just one location. In the last 20 years, we now have four churches around the area. God's done some incredible things, and we now have uh, around a dozen people who are overseas and whose goal for the rest of their, their life is to taking the gospel to where it's never been preached. We have dozens more in, in the pipeline who that is their plan. That's what they're intending to do once they are trained and equipped. Now, who in our church can take credit for that? Who can say, I, I did that? Like, that's kind of, that's kind of me. Nobody. None of, us can, none of us can take credit for that. That's something God has done. But God has done it through hundreds of people who have together embraced making disciples. He said, I'm going to use the unique ways God has given me. I'm going to use the unique ways that God has positioned me to glorify him and make disciples. And God has done some incredible things. Now with that, let me share just one more reason to give the rest of your life to making disciples. My final reason for you this morning is that it's the best way to invest your life. It's the best way to invest your life. All of us, we desire to have our, our life matter. All of us want a, a purpose that we can give ourselves to that is, is bigger than just us. And you can see this expressed in, in countless ways. But a friend of mine, he, he introduced me recently to an amazing example of this. How many of you have, have heard of the U.S. National Sandcastle Competition? <laughs> I have a few pictures here. It's in Cannon Beach, Oregon. Every year, and it attracts thousands of visitors. And uh, competitors in this competition, they have five hours starting at 10 a.m. to build the most impressive and often intricate sand sculptures that they can. And so this first picture here gives you kind of an aerial view of the allotment for all of the different teams. And then the next two, we'll look at some individual designs. This one says, the world is your oyster. Treasure it. I mean, just look how intricate that is. 
that's wild. Let's, let's look at the, the second one here. So this is smoky themed, you know, only you can prevent forest fires, probably appropriate in, in Oregon there. This is some of the stuff that they come up with in just five hours. Now, in this picture, I want you to notice there's a big rock behind those sand trees. You notice that rock? Now, the reason I point that out is because after five hours, these sand castles, they're, they're judged. These sculptures, they're judged. The prizes are given out. And you know what happens just shortly after that? High tide comes in. And everything that they built is completely washed away. Let's look at the next picture here. This is the next day. It looks like no one was even there. You can't even, you can't even see what they had worked so hard to accomplish. And isn't that a fitting parable of all the people who work so hard to chase their dreams and to build their perfect life or to make a name for themselves? But just like in the sandcastle competition, high tide has come in for all of us. And when that comes, when you die, Will how you've lived your life matter? Will, will what you gave yourself to last? You see, there's only one thing that you can live for now that will be eternally significant a million years from now. Now, eternally significant throughout, throughout the rest of time with Christ. And the only thing that, that will give you eternal significance in what you do is Christ and his mission. It's Christ and, and his mission you know, whether that's doing your chores cheerfully as a child, whether that's changing a, a baby's diaper or working hard in your classes as a student, whether that's mowing a neighbor's lawn or having spiritual conversations with a friend, or if it's, just, if it's showing integrity and the joy of Christ at your job day in and day out, whatever you do in faith to glorify Christ, Jesus says, that will receive an eternal reward. That will be eternally significant. Even a glass of cold water. You see, Christ is doing an eternal work in this world, and he wants to work through his people to do it. So why should you wholeheartedly give the rest of your life to the mission of the church? It's the best way to worship and love God. It's the best way to love and serve everyone you'll ever meet. And it's the best way to invest your life. So to close, what's the practical application of this message? Well, if you're here this morning and you know you're not a Christian, or maybe you're, you're unsure if you're a Christian. If that's you, we are so glad that you're here. And our hope is that you would decide to give your whole life to Christ. You'd see he's worthy of my whole life. Now, if you're like most people, that, that doesn't happen instantly. Most people, it takes some time to figure out, is Jesus who he claimed to be? Is he worthy of, of following with your whole Life. And if that's where you're at, with more questions than, than convictions or, or beliefs about Jesus, then I have a, a suggestion for you. My suggestion would be to invite you back next week to join us as we, as we begin studying the book of Romans. See, Romans is the most thorough explanation in the Bible of why every single person in the world needs to be saved and how Christ is the only one who can save us. It gives an, an incredible explanation of, of what it means to live life as a Christian. And so I hope you'll join us for that series, because I think it will be very helpful for you. But even if you don't, or if you have other questions, please let us know if there's any ways that we can serve you or, or support you. Now, for those of you who are Christians, my goal this morning is threefold. One, some of you are crushing this. Like some of you, you are a tremendous example. None of us are perfect, but some of you are such great examples of consistently living for the mission of God. 
living to point other people to Christ, using your gifts to help, help make disciples in the life of the church and in the places that God has put you. And so my hope for you this morning is that you'd be re-energized as we go into a new season of life. What you're doing is worth it. Jesus promises that he's going to be with us always. God promises that our labor in the Lord is never in vain. So I hope you'll be encouraged. Others here have probably drifted, and you've gone from being really excited about Christ's mission in the past to discouraged. And maybe you're discouraged because of the difficulty of it. Maybe you've been distracted by other, by other goals. Maybe you're unsure what it should look like in this new season of life. And so for you, my goal is that you be refocused. My, my goal is that you'll repent if you need to repent. My goal is that if you're, you're confused and unsure what it should look like, that you would pray and you'd ask God for clarity. What, what does it look like in this season of my life to be on mission? to help build up the church, help be involved in, in trying to reach out and, and influence others and, as you've given me opportunity. Now, last of all, I assume that there are probably some of you here who have never actually consciously thought about this question. Some of you here probably never consciously decided, I'm going to give my life to the mission of the church. I'm going to give my life to helping make disciples. And my hope for you is that before God, you'd make that decision today. My hope is that in light of all that Christ is and all he's done for you, that you would offer all that you have and all that you are to glorify him and to make disciples and that you would follow him no matter what that means or whatever that looks like for the rest of your life. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you gave your life for us. Thank you that salvation is a gift. Thank you that you don't love us because of how well we are we follow you as disciples. Thank you that you don't value us because of, of some utilitarian benefit you give from us. Thank you that we're not pawns to you. And God, I pray that you would help us to see the vital role that, that your mission gives in helping to maintain us in our spiritual health and maintain our relationship with you. God, as a, a church, we just ask that you would, you would help us to be more healthy. You would, you would help us to be more fruitful and, and on mission together with the motive of, of loving and worshiping you. God, we pray that not just our church, but all the, the gospel-preaching churches on the south side that, that we know and, and across the city, Lord, we, we pray, God, that, that there would be a revival Lord, that would begin in your churches. And we pray that we'd see thousands and thousands of people in the years, years to come would come to Christ and become fully mature disciples. Mature disciples who give the rest of their life to you and to your mission. God, we pray that you'd amaze us by the work that you do. But I thank you, God, that even, even if we never see a single person make a profession of faith, even if it appears that, that all of our efforts here don't accomplish anything, we thank you that it is still worth it to follow you. We thank you that it's still the very best thing that we could possibly give, give our lives to and that you promise that will get you and that will experience you as we walk that path. So God, help, help us to be passionate about the mission and to, to be just more faithful to you in it. I pray this in your great name. Amen. Well, this time we're going to continue our work.